The Interchange is brought to you by PG&E. Did you know that 20% of EV drivers in the U.S. are in PG&E service territory in Northern California? But the electric revolution is not going to happen with single drivers alone, so PG&E is helping to electrify corporate fleet vehicles. Get in touch with PG&E's EV specialists to find out how you can take your transportation fleet electric. Find out more at pge.com gtm. Support for The Interchange also comes from Wonder Capital. By now, you know that Wonder can finance your commercial or community solar projects, and you know they can do it at lightning speeds. But did you know they now have lower rates and can finance all kinds of projects? Head over to wondercapital.com gtm to experience the Wonder difference. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Greentech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Welcome to the show. This week, are Uber and Lyft bad for energy and climate? Three new studies show these companies are causing more traffic in major cities and pulling people away from public transit. Meanwhile, cities and states are trying to clean up those fleets by promoting electrification. This week, in honor of the Uber and Lyft IPOs, we are looking at the negative and positive consequences of ride-hailing. I just uh, picked up my co-host. He opted for sitting in the front seat rather than the back, and he won't stop talking to me about heat pumps and utility business models. Hello, sir. What is your name? <laughs> hey, Stephen. This is Shale Khan. I'm happy to be in the front seat of your of your lift line. Uh, it would have been nice if you had moved stuff out of that front seat before I sat down, but fine. Yeah, sorry. I got a lot of equipment here in the front seat. Uh, Shale is the managing director of Energy Impact Partners and He's got a 4.75 star rating as a co-host. <laughs> Do you ever look at your rider rating on Uber or Lyft? I'm, yeah, I'm, like I'm always like, why isn't it five number? stars? I know, I know. What have I done wrong? Well, you get 4.75 stars because of that one time you showed up a little tipsy and you kept demanding I play that Taylor Swift single on repeat. <laughs> it's a great song. <laughs> Chances are good that you're listening to us on your commute. And there's an increasingly likely chance you're listening to this while in an Uber or a Lyft, or maybe a Maven, or if you're in China, maybe in a car from Didi Shoshing. Whatever your transport option of choice, if you're on the road, you may have noticed that your commute is taking longer, and that's because of those ride-hailing firms known as transportation network companies. Three new studies have come out in recent months showing that ride-hailing is increasing traffic and it is decreasing use of public transport. So with Uber and Lyft now public, and now under more investor pressure to quickly expand, what does this mean for energy use and carbon emissions as more cars hit the road? Today, an examination of the good and bad consequences of the ride-hailing business. First, the bearish case, I suppose. Shale, what is um, the top worrying trend that points to the negative impact of Uber, Lyft, and others? Let's just walk through them and get your top one first. Sure. So I think there are a number of reasons uh, that you can make the case that that ride hailing or ride sharing is bad from a climate change perspective um, or from an energy perspective. The first one in my mind being the impacts that it has on public transit. We have a sort of long, slow, steady, secular decline in public transit ridership in the United States that is underway. And there is a fair amount of evidence, increasing evidence that um, ride hailing contributes to that. What about personal evidence? Are you taking fewer trips on, uh, you know, trains or in buses because of these services? Yeah, actually, they're they're a good example. So I live in the East Bay. I live in Berkeley and work in San Francisco when I'm not traveling. 
And, you know, oftentimes if I have a, an evening event or something like that in the city, by the time I get done, let's just say it's like 9 PM and I need to head back to Berkeley. I certainly could take BART, which is the subway here. But at that point in the day, it runs less frequently. And, you know, I'm some distance from the train station on the other end. So I'm apt to take an Uber or a Lyft at that time of day. That's, that's me, you know, five years ago, seven years ago, probably would have taken, would have taken public transit. I wasn't going to take a taxi otherwise. So certainly I have some anecdotal evidence personally that at least on the fringes, there are cases where I'm, I'm using it in lieu of public transit. You? Oh, yeah. I suspect my usage is similar to yours and probably most of our listeners out there. If I have to get home from an event or something else late at night, I will almost always take an Uber or Lyft. If I have, if I have to get somewhere very early in the morning when public transit is not running as often and I have have to get somewhere like on a deadline, I will take an Uber or Lyft. I think the biggest problem is when I have to be somewhere close to rush hour and I have a bunch of equipment with me and it's really heavy and I don't want to take it on the T or on a bus, I will take an Uber or Lyft and that's the time of day when it can cause the most problems. If I'm sitting in traffic between 7 and 9 a.m. and a lot of other people are using these services to get to work now. So this is causing particular problems where I live. Um, I live in East Boston, as I've mentioned on the show, and there's a real serious choke point between where I live and downtown Boston. There's just a two-lane tunnel, and traffic through that tunnel in the last few years has gone up 46%. Now, I have no idea how much we can attribute that to ride-sharing, but it's been the result of a long period of poor transportation planning. And now all these added cars on the road uh, from people moving into East Boston and from Uber or Lyft are causing a lot more problems. And so I do find myself occasionally taking an Uber or Lyft at that hour when it's the worst possible time. Um, because public transit is just more difficult for me logistically. Right. And so there's some evidence uh, that is better than just our own personal stories that this is happening broadly. There's a University of Kentucky study um, a couple of years ago that suggested that whenever Uber and Lyft enter a new city, so this is you know, basically already happened. But when just as soon as they enter a city, they decrease rail ridership by about 1.3% per year, and they decrease bus ridership by 1.7% per year, which those don't sound like huge numbers, but actually an aggregate across an entire public transit system, especially if that is is happening continually, that's a lot. So the first sort of negative thing here is if you are replacing public transit rides, which are basically the most energy efficient and thus least emitting way to get around um, with single occupant or double occupant passenger vehicles, that's, that's obviously bad from a climate change perspective. So for a long time, Uber and Lyft were making this argument that this was the environmentally beneficial solution because they offered this better last mile solution to get you to the commuter rail, to get you to the local train, to get you to the bus stop. And that's not really how people are using it. Actually, we do see people using it to get to commuter rail. We see commuter rail usage go up 
when Lyft and Uber enter a market, but we also see local train rides and bus rides go down. So study after study has now shown that Lyft and Uber cause more congestion. They put more cars on the road. I'm not really hearing these companies make the same argument they once did. Well, I do think that, I mean, to your point, that was that's one interesting finding from the research that while most public transit uh, ridership goes down after Uber and Lyft enter a city, the exception to that, at least in some cases, has been the commuter rail. So that's an interesting thing. You know, it suggests people are using it for that last mile just to get to longer trips. And, and I think there is some evidence that people are using Uber and Lyft at least sometimes to get to the train station or to get to a bus station or something like that. But also I think there are a bunch of alternative solutions that are popping up for that last mile solution. There's, there's a a few companies that are pursuing sort of last mile dynamic buses. I guess you might call them shuttles more than buses. They tend to be like six or 12 passenger vehicles that are basically there just to try to get people who are, you know, a mile or two miles from the nearest public transit hub to that hub. And they're, they're, partnering with cities on this. Some of them are selling advertising on the shuttles to buy down the cost for customers. So I think that, you know, Uber and Lyft have competition in that last mile space, but either way, you know, on net, I think it's, it's bad that they are decreasing public transit ridership. You've also, Stephen, alluded already a couple of times to, I think the next knock on uh, ride hailing from an energy and climate perspective, which is the increase in congestion that they cause. And there's a bunch of research on that as well. That's right. There was a study that came out from the San Francisco Transportation Authority that showed a massive increase in congestion in the Bay Area. Uh, 40% of the increase in traffic in San Francisco was due to transportation network companies, according to the Transportation Authority. So that's a pretty significant number. And we've seen within the last two years, similar results from other cities that are showing, yes, indeed, these companies create more congestion. Right. And so congestion is bad from an a, an environmental perspective, obviously, if these are vehicles that are emitting, you know, from a um, local air quality perspective, congestion is bad. It's bad, you know, for all of us who are trying to get around in the city in general, but then it also relates to this. I think the, the single, perhaps most important um, challenge that the TNC companies have, if they're trying to make a case that they're good for the environment is that they just increase overall vehicle miles traveled or VMT. And, so there, just to walk through it for a second, if you think about the, the, how we use Uber and Lyft, there's a few different reasons why it increases overall vehicle miles traveled, just total on the road for vehicles. The first is that, it, you know, something that I think would be a good thing in some contexts, which is it enables more trips. People who can't drive, for example, um, and don't have easy access to public transit, uh, they, you know, can use Uber and Lyft. So those are just rides that would not have happened Otherwise, second, you know, they may be using Uber or Lyft, or we may be using Uber or Lyft to replace a public transit trip, but we also may be using it to replace walking or biking or something else. And so, again, we're just taking miles in a car that we otherwise would have been taking in some other way. Then the third, which is significant on its own, is just that you end up having a fair amount of travel without passengers actually going anywhere. In other words, while the Uber driver needs to wait to get to the next 
passenger or needs to drive to get to the next passenger. Um, those are miles that also would not have happened had those trips been taken in a, in a different manner. In um, There's one study on that one in San Francisco as well that was showing an overall increase in vehicle miles traveled of about 6.5% on a typical weekday, 10% on the weekend. Um, something similar in, in Austin, 8 to 11% on a typical weekday just from the travel without passengers side. So that all just means basically once Uber and Lyft are prevalent within a city or one of them, um, we just end up taking more miles in cars within that city. And that obviously creates more emissions. Look, we could just sit here and list off a ton more research. There was also a study from Schaller Consulting that showed TNC companies added 5.7 billion miles of extra driving in the nine largest cities around the United States over the last few years. Um, again, in 2018, there were like three or four other studies that showed Chicago, San Francisco, Boston, D.C., more congestion and more vehicle miles traveled. So to summarize, this impact is definitely unfolding today. It's pretty clear that we've got more cars on the road. I guess the question, Shale, is like, how bad is this, right? How do you interpret this? Is this a blip and we're going to solve it? Or is this like the beginning of a very serious problem? Well, we've talked about it before, but Transportation very recently surpassed electricity as the single largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. And while greenhouse gas emissions from the electricity sector are starting to decline in the transportation sector, they have been continuing to increase. Um, I don't think you can ascribe a ton of that increase to the transportation network companies yet. But if you just draw forward what we're talking about here, what you end up with is a world in which we drive many, many more miles, like billions of additional miles um, that would not have occurred otherwise. Each of those miles, you know, largely if they're coming from an internal combustion engine vehicle, emitting more greenhouse gases, um, where public transit sees a continual steady decline in ridership, which becomes ultimately kind of an existential crisis for public transit itself um, and and could cause huge disruptions in that world. Um, and where, you know, we have a ton of congestion, which makes it less attractive for people to work in cities uh, because the commute gets worse and worse and thus urbanization goes on pause. So all those things together, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to overstate it, but if, if that's, the entire story, I do think it's actually quite bad from a climate perspective. Well, coming up, we'll lay out the bullish case for transportation networking companies, and it largely revolves around electric cars. First, if you're looking to electrify your fleet of vehicles, look no further than PG&E. Now is the time to begin electrifying your fleet, and if you're in PG&E's service territory, you can take advantage of limited-time incentives so that you can get that fleet electrified. Transit buses, delivery vehicles, and all kinds of fleet vehicles, you can get electrified because PG&E will provide the logistical, construction, and financial support for the infrastructure to help you out. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists to learn more at pge.com gtm. And if you're looking to pair that EV charging with solar, our other sponsor, Wonder Capital, can help. They can help with all kinds of solar projects, in fact. 
community solar in upstate New York, Hawaii solar projects with storage, Massachusetts smart projects, Rhode Island reg projects, California CCAs, not a problem, folks. There is no such thing as a vanilla commercial scale solar project. Head on over to wondercapital.com GTM to work with folks who will understand your unique project for what it is, financeable. Okay, Shale, channel your inner bull. Let's dissect the positive case for ride hailing. What's the top one? I mean, most of the positive case, I think, revolves around the fact that it's going to make a lot of sense for ride hailing cars to be electric cars. Um, the, the basic reason for that being the utilization profile is really high, right? The whole thing with the, the, the car that's being used as an Uber or Lyft car, whether it's owned by an individual driver or whether it's owned by a fleet and rented out to individual drivers, is it's going to be driven a lot more than your average car. And that supports the economics of electric vehicles really well because they are more uh, expensive up front, but the operational cost is much, much lower, both because maintenance is cheap and because electricity is way cheaper than fueling with gasoline. So the, the short version of the bullish case is just um, the transition to EVs could occur much faster with these vehicles. And because these vehicles are driving a disproportionately large number of miles, it actually means that the total number of vehicle miles driven will be more electric um, than these vehicles will be as a share of the total population of vehicles. In other words, say say 10% of vehicles are being used for Uber and Lyft. Um, that might mean that 30% of all miles driven come from those vehicles. So if they're electric, it has a disproportionately large impact. Now, there's no doubt that maintenance costs for EVs are lower when comparing ownership between an electric vehicle an internal combustion engine. But when you're using this car for ride sharing, an electric vehicle doesn't necessarily net out positive. We were both reading this report from the International Council on Clean Transportation that looked at how to turn over more of these vehicles and make them electric. Um, and they showed that if you own a 250-mile EV, then it's probably about the same as a conventional vehicle, because you have lower maintenance costs, but you actually have longer charge times, which cause the vehicle to be idle. So if you're depending on that car to make you money, you want to run it as much as possible. And that car is going to have to be idle a lot more if you're charging it a bunch in the middle of the day. So for this specific application, EVs potentially aren't the right solution as the model stands today. I don't think I agree with that, actually. Um and, but I think there's a few nuances to it. I, I agree that I think that study is really interesting because one thing you don't see often is you'll see a comparison of the total cost of ownership of a con conventional ICE vehicle to an electric vehicle, it, particularly in the context of an Uber or Lyft driver. The most salient addition you need to make to that, which this study does, is what you alluded to, which is the opportunity cost of charging. The time that you're spending charging is time that you are not spending driving people around and making money. So that has a real economic cost. So they incorporate that. And as you said, the, the, the high level finding was if you have a 250 mile range electric vehicle, incorporating the opportunity cost of charging on a, a five year total cost of operation, I want to note five years, not lifetime, it nets out about even today to a conventional 30 mile per gallon vehicle. That's pretty good. 
right? Even today, um, with costs for electric vehicles as high as they are on a total cost of ownership basis, it's basically even for you. And that number can go up or down depending on how you're charging, right? If you do have at home charging and you can charge overnight, that, that decreases your opportunity cost. So if you're an Uber or Lyft driver who actually happens to be able to charge at home, it's better for you, obviously. Even if you can't charge at home though, and you're doing all like public fast charging, you know, given where the costs are, are heading, um, they expect that by relatively early next decade, the costs will, will switch over and it'll end up being cheaper for you. So what you care about if you're, driving an Uber or Lyft and you're thinking about an electric vehicle, you care, obviously the upfront cost is an issue, how do you finance it and so on. But in general, you care about, can you charge at home? Can you fast charge? How fast can you charge? And what's the range of the vehicle? How often do you need to charge? And as all those things get better and better, it's actually pretty going to be clear pretty quickly, I think, that electric vehicles are just better overall for a TNC driver than a conventional vehicle. The most optimal solution is a electric vehicle with over 250 miles of range and some kind of private charger that will allow you to charge that vehicle overnight. Because if you're relying on public fast chargers, that can potentially, depending on where you live and what time of the day you're charging, it can be double the cost of overnight charging. So optimally, you have the ability to charge that vehicle at night you have a longer range than 250 miles, and it's, the economics look really good within that five-year window and even better beyond. Or or you don't own the vehicle yourself. It's a fleet-owned vehicle, which is increasingly becoming popular. I've recently since been doing this research. I started getting served ads um, as if I'm interested in becoming an Uber driver. And, you know, I've, I've, so I've started clicking on them. And they show you the different options that you've got if you don't have access to your own vehicle for Uber. And you can, you could do daily rentals from Get Around, the peer to peer car sharing company. You can get weekly rentals uh, from, I think it's Hertz or Enterprise. Um, you can get monthly rentals from Fair. So any of those things are possible, but particularly with the daily rentals, if you want to do daily rentals and then give it back to the fleet at the end of the day, the fleet can charge overnight and can have a centralized fleet depot. So that's another option for for getting that overnight charging that doesn't have a big opportunity cost attached to it. Wait, but the, they but the think other... that you want to be a driver? Uh-huh. <laughs> that, that reminds me of a friend who many years back got inebriated woke up in the morning and had tried to hail an Uber and instead had worked his way through the process uh, applying to become an Uber driver and for the next month had been served like legal documents and marketing materials getting him to sign up. Although I suppose that, you know, numerous people have, have encountered this problem before. Really? You think that's a common problem is people getting drunk and signing up to be Uber drivers? <laughs> Possibly. You haven't told us the full story of why they keep serving you materials. <laughs> I mean, look, I don't know. Maybe that maybe that did happen. Uh, you, don't no remember. you don't remember. You don't remember. I certainly don't remember doing it. Um, but actually, you alluded to uh, the other part of the, the bullish case for, for why this is good, which is it's, this is a, a two-parter, right? The first part is it's going to make sense for these vehicles to be electric increasingly over time. The second part to that is that the charging profiles of those vehicles actually 
could be pretty good, could be better, in fact, from a sort of grid management perspective and thus from an integration of renewables perspective than your average electric vehicle. Yeah. Julia Piper wrote a great piece at Green Tech Media using analysis from uh, the EV charging company EVgo. And she talked to Julie Blunden, who walked her through some of the analysis showing that uh, turns out many of these chargers are being used at the perfect time of day. Do you want to summarize that a bit more? Yeah, well, it sort of looks like... So the data that EVgo provided was from... um, electric vehicles being used for ride sharing within California, right? And so the big issue we have in California, especially this time of year, is we have overgeneration of solar in the middle of the day. And then we have this peak in the evening um, that when the sun is setting. So if you're a typical electric vehicle driver, sort of you own the vehicle and you're commuting to work, um, possibly you're charging during the day if you have workplace charging, but more likely what happens is you drive to work, you park at work, you drive home, and then when you get home in the evening, you want to plug the car in and charge. That's the sort of typical solution. This is the biggest problem everybody faces because if everybody does that at the same time, that's already approaching the peak in that early evening period. And that's when we're going to start to have a big issue with the duck curve and so on. But these... That is uh, the neck of the duck, so to speak. Exactly. It's the neck of the duck. But what was happening with these EVgo rideshare um, drivers is that they see their biggest peak in demand, the time when they can get surge pricing and the time when they have the most customers, right around that same period in the evening when everybody's commuting home from work and a little bit thereafter, which makes a lot of sense. So what they ended up doing is charging primarily in the middle of the day when a lot of people are at work and when demand is lower and when there is solar overgeneration, um, and then not charging very much during that evening peak period, and then charging again late in the evening and overnight because that's when there's, again, less demand. So the demand profile for Uber and Lyft, at least from this sample, um, suggests that it aligns really well with using an electric vehicle to integrate more solar on the grid. So what you're saying is that they have this fleet opportunity that they could clean up with the right tools somewhat quickly with electric vehicles, and that those electric vehicles can be used. Initial data shows us that those electric vehicles can be used at the perfect time of day to manage the grid better and accommodate a higher renewable energy uh, grid mix. Right. Potentially. Yeah. And I would add just- That's the bullish case. Yes. And let me add two more just- uh, factors in favor of that. The first is that um, because you drive so many more miles per year in a vehicle being used for Uber or Lyft, say 50,000 miles a year instead of you know 10,000 or whatever it might be normally, there, there'll be a faster turnover of stock of vehicles, right? You, you wear out a vehicle faster. That means actually, this is one of the biggest problems with the sort of adoption rate of electric vehicles that everybody's forecasting is the most aggressive forecast that you see for electric vehicle adoption. Assume that we're going to start to sell our cars earlier than we normally would in order to get an electric vehicle. And there's a lot of reasonable skepticism about that. But if an increasing number of vehicles are being driven 50,000 miles a year, that just means they're going to turn over faster. And it means they have the opportunity to switch to an electric vehicle faster. So it's another reason why you could see the the um, shift faster because more vehicles are being used this way. And then the final thing that I would say is that both Lyft and Uber have programs. You can argue about how 
um, ambitious the programs are, but they both have programs that are trying to push electric vehicles in different ways. Lyft has this Lyft green mode program that's starting in Seattle. Um, they also are, are starting to rent out electric vehicles to drivers that include charging within the rentals. Uber is aiming for all electric in London by 2025 um, and is incentivizing drivers to to go electric. So I think Lyft and Uber themselves also see this as an opportunity. I love, love, love this green mode idea or the Uber program to get electric vehicles on London's roads. You have to get this out to the consumer, let them see that they have options. And Lyft has for a long time said that it will use carbon offsets to make its rides 100% carbon free. But like, you know, that's greenwashing. If it can create a green mode where passengers always have the ability to get an electric car or a hybrid, I really love it. And I think it can spur change because I'm a big believer that consumers want it and you'll have a large number of people who actually hit that green mode button. I know I would. I, I don't know if I would <laughs> consistently, to be honest, but... Really? Why? Oh, why? Well, if it, is it more expensive? Are you that much of like a vicious price hawk that you wouldn't pay an extra buck or two to get an EV or a hybrid? I don't know. Or are you just worried about like that, that there won't be enough availability? Yeah. I mean, that would be a factor. I mean, to be honest, right? Like if it, if I feel like it's going to take five minutes longer, it sounds ridiculous to say it, but if I feel like it's going to take five minutes longer for my ride to get here, if I, if I choose green mode, would I, would I do it every time? I don't think I would. I think sometimes I would. Anyway, the point oh being, my I, God, I agree you with just you. Cr- I was trying to be so optimistic and you just like <laughs> crushed my optimism because if someone like you is worried about three to five minutes because they can't get the right car, then, then maybe... I mean, think about the other subset of consumers who don't give a shit about it at all. Well, I, yeah, I think I believe that. And I, but that's why I think that's not the thing that's going to drive faster EV adoption. Like I just, I don't think consumer choice, I think economics will, right. I think it's going to become cheaper. It's going to become a better deal for drivers and for fleet owners to have electric vehicles operating than ICE vehicles. And that's, what's going to win the day. I don't think it's just the economics of the car itself. You have to have programs that spur adoption. And that's on the city and state level, and that's within these companies themselves. Now, on the city and state level, there are a lot of things that you can do to make electric cars way more attractive. There are state caps on tax credits for electric vehicles and federal caps on electric vehicle tax credits. So you could raise those caps for drivers operating under uh, Lyft or Uber. Now that's, you know, that's a little bit risky because theoretically these are just contractors and they can cycle in and out of um, Lyft and Uber very quickly. So I don't know how you tie that to like using that car for that purpose for a certain period of time, but it seems like you could do something with caps for tax credits. Um, Of course, tax credits for like private chargers as well, or of course, public chargers. Um, There's also like some kind of public benefits charge maybe for these companies, similar to what you see in the utility space. And maybe you use that public benefits charge to like encourage more charging infrastructure or something exclusively for transportation network companies. Uh, You can obviously take congestion pricing and use that to encourage certain types of vehicles at certain times of day. And you see that a lot in Europe. You also see low emission vehicle zones in Europe. 
And you could factor in EV usage to that pricing system. So there are a lot of things that you can do to change the economics of EVs specifically for this application. Yeah, I think that the to me the the one that's the most important is figure out the charging infrastructure problem. The the so Uber ran a trial in London with a bunch of electric vehicles and it went very well overall, but the biggest challenge that they revealed was that um there was not enough charging infrastructure. Either first of all, you know, few drivers actually had access to at-home charging. So one thing you can do is try to get more charging available to people who don't have single family residences where they can do themselves. There's lots of interesting programs around uh, multifamily residences and apartment buildings and so on. But, you know, the second is if they're going to do most of their charging at public DC fast chargers, you need there to be sufficient availability of those DC fast chargers geographically. Because one thing you have to remember is that an Uber driver does not have a lot of control over where their vehicle goes. So if they get sent, you know, once in a while, I, I, I picked up an Uber um, at the San Francisco airport last week who the guy told me that he had started in Sacramento, which is hours away, right? And somebody took a ride all the way from Sacramento to the San Francisco airport. So you need charging kind of everywhere because an Uber driver can't get stuck. In addition to that, you have to know that there's going to be charging available because again, this opportunity cost issue is huge. And so if they show up at a, a public charger and it's all taken and they have to wait an hour just to get the charge, that's a huge economic cost to them. So charging availability, I think, is going to be the single most important factor here. Yeah, this is why you need the Lyft and Ubers of the world, the state or city government, and the utilities to come together and try to establish some kind of target so that you can develop the infrastructure accordingly. If you can set some kind of goal and everyone is working toward it, then it makes the infrastructure decisions a heck of a lot easier. Yep. And they can, you know, it's nice that those groups are all aligned in many of these cases. There's an organization called the Alliance for Transportation Electrification, which EIP, where I work, had a a hand in creating that um, has members, you know, oil and gas companies, EV charging companies, utilities, a bunch of others who are kind of all banding together to try to get more charging deployed. What about the wild card of autonomous cars? What do you think the end consequences of AVs are? So it's an interesting question. Um, my colleague, Peter Fox Penner, who I work with at Energy Impact Partners, um, also wears a hat at an academic hat at, at Boston University. And he and some colleagues there uh, wrote a study a little while back that was looking at, uh, let's just assume way out into 2050 future where autonomous vehicles are ubiquitous and where basically all of those vehicles are electric. What impact on electricity load will autonomous have? In other words, um, will autonomous increase demand for electricity or decrease demand for electricity or neither? And there's actually factors that point in both directions. So if you have, you know, all autonomous vehicles, they can be, um, it probably means you end up with more vehicle miles traveled as well, because you have people who can commute from further distances. You have people, again, who could not drive otherwise, who will be able to ride in these vehicles. So that'll all increase the total number of vehicle miles traveled, which will increase electricity load. On the other hand, the vehicles themselves can be, they can drive more efficiently. They can platoon. Um, they don't have this sort of human error component where we, we certainly do not drive as efficiently as possible, but if the vehicle that's driving is a machine, it probably is. So on a per mile basis, 
they may actually use less energy. So it's more miles, but less energy per mile. On net, the modeling that Peter was doing estimated that it would be an increase overall of about 20%. So 20% more electricity load coming from electric autonomous electric vehicles than just electric vehicles on their own. So I guess from that perspective, you know, good if you're selling electricity, bad if you're worried about decarbonizing the electricity sector. Right. So when it comes to AVs, they could absolutely be beneficial and a more efficient way to use vehicles, but you have to electrify them because they don't they won't have an added benefit if you don't electrify them and you have to power them with renewables. And you also just can't let these cars zip around the block empty uh, you know waiting to pick people up. You have to program them so they might they go back to some central facility if they're not in use, because uh, you could see this nightmare scenario where AVs that are not powered by renewable electricity are out circling the streets, causing more congestion, and you haven't solved any problems at all. So, what do you think, Shale? On net, given what we've outlined here, do you believe that Lyft and Uber and other transportation networking companies are a net benefit or a net negative for the environment? I it's a hard answer because as we've laid out, I think there's evidence on both sides. Um, my suspicion is that on net, it's probably bad. You know, the increase in vehicle miles traveled and increase in congestion, decrease in public transit ridership is probably bad enough to make up for the fact that these vehicles may be better suited to electric and that the profile of those electric vehicles will be potentially beneficial to the grid. So I think I come out negative on net, but it's a close call for me. What about you? I think within a decade, we'll largely solve a lot of these challenges. Congestion prices may change the economic equation for a lot of uh, ride hailing, and it may open up more opportunities for public transit. We hope. (laughs) Pricing can be very powerful, but the convenience of these services is extremely powerful as well. So I'm, I'm holding out hope there. But I do think that these companies do take cleaning their fleets very seriously and will they'll put in place more programs internally within the company and then we'll see a lot of more state and city programs to encourage electric vehicle adoption. So I, I believe that we can clean up these fleets as well, but it'll probably take you know seven to ten years. Um, we don't have a lot of time to solve climate change. You know, we have a couple of decades. And if we're putting more cars on the road, putting more internal combustion engines on the road, taking people away from public transit over the next decade until we solve this problem, that's a scary scenario. So long term, I think we can solve it. Short term, I think it's a pretty serious problem that will only get worse. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, You know, bad short term, good long term. But the question is, you know, how long does that short term last? Yeah. So if you're a city planner, your job is a hell of a lot harder. Yeah. I mean, in general, if you're if you're a transit planner for cities or you're working at the DOT or something like that, you've got a lot to deal with right now. You're, you're trying to figure out how to deal with TNCs. You're probably trying to figure out how to deal with micromobility. You're trying to, you know, support the public transit system. The The whole world of urban transportation is just becoming a lot more complex really quickly. Um, and I think that presents a big challenge, potentially a big opportunity for cities, but, but they've certainly got a lot on their plates. So last question, will you be taking an Uber or Lyft today when we finish this show? 
Hmm. Good question. I, I will not today. Um, I almost definitely will tomorrow. In the meantime, by the way, I mean, what we haven't talked about with Uber and Lyft is just how much the public markets are eviscerating them in their early days of trading. I'm looking and Uber is, at least at this moment, we are recording on Monday, at this moment, Uber's down another 11% today after a pretty bad first day of trading on on Friday. I don't know that that affects their plans to electrify at all, but sure isn't good. Well, we know one thing, you're not going to be asking for green mode when you take that car. <laughs> we don't know that. <laughs> or are you? I don't know. Maybe. We can only hope that you'll make now the I right choice. Now I feel like I should. Now you've gu- you've guilted me into it. Well, we so have a I public forum to shame each other, so I'm going to use that platform right now. <laughs> yeah, mission accomplished. <laughs> That's all for the show, folks. Are you a passenger hoping for more EV options, a green mode, so to speak? Are you a planner or policy person trying to figure this all out? What do we get right? What do we get wrong? Uh, what are some areas we should explore more? We want to know your take. Hit us up on Twitter at Interchange Show. Shayla's there. I'm there as well. We'd love to hear from you. We always look through all our tweets and emails. So even if we don't respond to you, we really appreciate it. And like I say every time, you do influence the direction of the show. We often rely on listener insights. So thank you for that. And just like you would for a driver, give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or send a recommendation to someone you know. We don't offer tipping, but you uh, spreading the word is the best tip we could ask for. And I, I just try to generally maintain our podcast rating higher than my Uber passenger rating. <laughs> With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>